Friends, would you please turn to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. One of the challenges, how many of you, uh, I, I issued a summer challenge to be reading through all the Psalms. How many of you, just honestly, not for guilt's sake, assessment's sake, how many of you have been, been working hard at reading every day, honestly? Good. Can I encourage the rest of you, grab in the back or online one of these things that help you. It is not too late to start, and even as we are, I think we are in week four, aren't we? Week four, start Working on memorizing, are we, we're starting week five, right? One, two, three, I think we're starting week five. Uh, start, start there, or even if you want to go all the way back to the beginning and kind of do a, a fast forward, work on reading, being regular in scripture. If you say your job does not allow you to do it because it's, man, it's just too busy or your family life, there's probably some priority priorities that need to be shifted around and or maybe you need to wake a little earlier or stay up a little later or use your lunch break a little differently or your meal times a little bit differently get into the word of God use this time to let it get planted take root and bear fruit in your life so why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 83. Psalm 83. And this is going to be an interesting one because it's uh, one of uh, a more historical uh, psalm. It doesn't, it's not like Psalm 23. Hear the Word of the Lord. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O oh God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and Hagrites, Gabal and Amnon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also has joined them, and they are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabem at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possessions of ours of the pastures of God. O God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, a fire consumes, as the fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There is a storyline through all of Scripture. And this big picture storyline of the Bible is often called a meta-narrative. A what? Meta-narrative. And it can be summarized in four easy uh, keywords. Creation. Fall. Redemption. And consummation. Creation. God created the, 
the whole world to display His glory. He did it with a purpose. God wasn't lonely, but He created the world because He wanted something to display His glory for generation to generation to generation. Then quickly came what was called the fall. Sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Just a couple short chapters into the Bible. The fall enters the world. And and it entered by Adam and Eve's disobedience. And with all that, all of that, that simple act, eating fruit, cosmic brokenness involving conflict, pain, suffering, evil, and death entered the world. Cosmic. It wasn't just localized. It'd be nice if it just stayed in the Garden of Eden as just a really bad disease, but it's cosmic. The fall has affected, infected everything. The third big word is redemption. Jesus, fully God, fully man, it's not a 50-50 deal, fully God, fully man came to the earth, died on the cross in order that he might initiate a plan to reconcile humanity to himself, back to God, by making an atonement for those, a covering of sin for those who believe on him. And then the last word, consummation. There will be a day in the future when God will restore everything. Everything back to the way it was before sin entered into the world. Redemption through Jesus uh, will be the full-on display as God welcomes His followers into everlasting life. It's, and there will be a, a judgment, a once-and-for-all judgment, and the devil will be forever, forever confined to the lake of fire. Praise be to God, because I am sick and tired of this world. It's broken. That cosmic brokenness has affected relationships, our world, the nature, everything that we come in contact with, it has affected us. And I am longing for that one day where sin will no longer reign. You've, effect, you've been affected by death. You, many of you have been affected by divorce and relational dysfunction. Our hearts as Christians should long for that day where Satan is confined locked, never again to bother God's people. But right now, we find ourselves in between that time of redemption and consummation. The death and resurrection of Jesus made personal renewal a real possibility for the people who would receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we get a foretaste We get a little taste of what that consummation will be like. We get a taste of, oh, one day all things will be made right. But during this period, you and I live in this spiritual tension as we long for that full reality, for the rest of salvation to come into our lives. We long for the day where our faith shall be made sight. For the day when God makes all things new. But for now, friends, we are caught in between those two worlds. That communicates the necessity of good, solid discipleship. Of teaching our children how do we live in this world that is broken. And it seems like there's a crescendo, doesn't it? It's increasing. The birth pains are getting greater. It's a reminder for us as believers that we need to hear the Word of God regularly in our personal devotions. But also, we need this time together to sit underneath God's Word and just say, okay, help me understand, help me to grow. Because we know that waiting is not easy. I am impulsive. Anybody else? Waiting 
is awful. Waiting is not easy because in our spiritual lives because we see the effects of sin in our world. And we, we know that this is not the way it is. I would much rather, in the way that I'm wired, I'd much rather fast forward and just consummation. I came to Jesus, Lord, take me home. But that's not how it works. There are moments when this, there's a low-grade ache for renewal that just re- reaches a desperate kind of fever in my life where I go, come on, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. No longer. Don't make us wait any longer. There are times when it seems that evil, sin, and brokenness of this world is not only real and present, it feels like there are moments in my life where all those things seem to be winning. Do you ever feel that way? Those moments in your life of like, really God? What is going on here? Why is this brokenness so prevalent, so heavy, so right here, right now, and it's growing and growing? And this, is, this feeling is deeply disturbing at any level, whether it be global or whether it be personal with friends and family, or nationally and globally. For those who know and love the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this appearance of a looming and potentially victorious evil seems just like an outrage. And you want to scream out, this can't be it! This can't be it! So the question, when we read Psalm 83... The question that we've got to be asking is when life looks and feels bad, when things feel like sin and evil are reigning in our world, what do you say? Do you say anything? How do you respond to this looming and a feeling of ever-growing evil in this world? And Psalm 83 answers that question. And helps us see that God's divine silence or delay does not mean that it's over. Psalms speak to an important season of our life that all of us will experience. And we have psalms that are needed for each season of life. We saw in Psalm, Psalm 1 that there are, there are two paths. It's, it's decisive. We saw in Psalm 8, Psalm 8 displayed the glory, the majesty, and the mercy of God. In, in Psalm 9, it helped us to think about how to link praise to the past to help us kind of through that crucible or that, the troubled times. And Psalm 34 showed us that close call moments, real close call moments, help us to see life differently. And underneath Psalm 83 is this principle, this underlying principle, that loving God's glory makes you long for righteousness to flourish. Loving God's glory just creates this longing, a growing desire. God, show up. Make your face known. But it also makes your heart ache in this present world when evil seems to be winning. And Psalm 83 starts off with an ache. It's kind of this spiritual groan. It's, It's as though the psalmist Asaph has reached a point where he can no longer contain his feelings. Do you ever have that? In a conversation or in a situation where it's like, all right, I'm done. I've just got to let loose. Why is this happening in my heart? Why is this happening in my relationship? I'm sick and tired of this. I'm done with this. And that's, Asaph kind of hit a boiling point where he was just done and he just kind of let loose. I mean, there's a point of frustration. And it's good that we can see here in the Psalms, inspired scripture, word, the word of God, that even the psalmist can say, oh, I need to vent. Now, there's a righteous way to vent. Hear me right now. 
Because some of you are venters and you shoot before you, you think. But Asaph kind of says, listen, and it starts in verse 1. He, he directly just states what's on his mind. And the rest of the psalm explains why he would do this. The, the ache of his heart and the theme of the psalm is delay no longer. Did you see that? Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. Don't delay. He's just letting it out. And he apparently knows what it, like, it feels like to live in an evil world. And he is just emotionally wrestling with God's silence and his delay. He sees the, there's a flood of evil and opposition all around him. And he just longs for God to do something. Do you have that? As you look in this broken world, do you just say, God, would you just shut down every abortion clinic? I'm done with seeing children being butchered. I'm done with it. My heart is aching. God, I hate divorce. It is destroying families. It's destroying our, our schools, our culture. God, I hate this. Would you do something? There's this just this growing, bubbling up, and you're just longing for God to do something. And so Asaph says in verse 1, God, do not be silent. Do not hold your peace. God, do not be still. God's silence, his holding his peace and his being still are still all still ways of saying that action by God is needed. Asaph wants, wants more than just communication from God. He wants action. He wants God to move. He's appealing God to come. Would you come and be a part of this? Restore this broken world. Notice that waiting and asking for help are not mutually excuse, exclusive words. In other words, we are commanded to wait upon the Lord, right? Wait. But our waiting is a prayerful one, a time for seeking the Lord. Therefore, to, to ask for help continually, continually or desperately, does not negate the waiting. John Calvin put it this way, it is unquestionably our duty to wait patiently when God at any time delays His help. It is our duty. But, in condescension to our infirmity, He permits us to supplicate Him to make haste. So in other words, He says, yeah, it's, it's your duty, duty to wait, but it is also your right to keep coming to him and asking him, Lord, would you make this so? Would you fix this world? Would you fix my marriage? Would you fix this, this relationship? Lord, would you shut these things down and keep praying those kind of prayers? Therefore, when you are hurting, anybody? When you are waiting, anyone? When you're scared, talk to God. Ask him to, to act. Impatience with God is not asking him to act. It is demanding him to act. There is a world of difference between those two, but there is another side as well. Faith-filled waiting. Faith-filled waiting is not a morbid, fatalistic kind of silence. It involves rugged wrestling and acting God to act. It's not just, oh, God will be God. His will be done. It's a, it's a, as a child comes to a parent saying, would you please act? Would you please correct this injustice? Please, please. And that's okay. Oh, God, do not keep your silence. There's another reason why this psalm was, was written. And we're not told specifically in this psalm. We don't know for sure the context it can't be determined with absolute certainty, but as you look in the Old Testament, there's 
some interesting parallels that go on in, in 2 Chronicles verse, uh, chapter 20. And King Jehoshaphat, if you're looking for another name to name your next son, Jehoshaphat. And it's a good name because Jehoshaphat was a reformer. He longed to bring about change in, in, in Judah. He was the king over Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was a spiritually minded reformer. He wanted to bring change back to Judah. He battled against the, the cultural evil that was taking place in Judah. He restored spiritual vitality once again. He led a time of renewal with the people of God. However, the, there was a moment, a moment of crisis came over the entire nation. The entire nation. Jehoshaphat learned that an alliance of surrounding nations had formed and they were planning an attack. And upon hearing that news, Jehoshaphat led his people to seek the Lord. He called his, all the people of Judah together for a sacred assembly in Jerusalem where they would seek the Lord together. Listen to this prayer. We, we've kind of lost the art of prayer. But listen to this. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the nation, kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Did you not, O God? Did you not? It's kind of like a reminder. And God's going, I know. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they, they have lived in it and have built for you in, a, in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sore judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. In other words, God... You're here, and we're coming before you with all this stuff. And why would they do that? To cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you uh, would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. And I love this. But our eyes are on don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. So in the midst of this, this sacred assembly, there was a man who stood up uh, who, who prophesied that the Lord would deliver them. And he said this, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, all these nations that are surrounding you. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Could you imagine that moment? These people are just saying, okay, we're here. We're at, we're at this sacred place, a sacred assembly. We're praying to you. We are surrounded by enemies. And also one man stands up as everybody is down on their knees, their face before God. He stands up and says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't just be dismayed. Because you know what? The battle isn't even yours. It's God's. And what did God do? God did win the victory. When they went out to meet this army, there were dead uh Bodies all over the ground. And the amazing thing is the man who stood up with that prophecy was a Levite, and he was one of the sons of Asaph, the author of this psalm. It may be uh, that he wrote this psalm before or after this moment, but the parables are just noteworthy so psalm uh, the second verse just says that th there's evil that is growing 
He expresses his current concern. Listen, God, this is what I see. These enemies are growing. They're getting stronger. They're stirring. Your enemies make up a, are making an uproar, you know? I, I think about uh, the, the good old war movies where what do they do? They kind of clash together all their weapons, and there's a roar out there, and all of a sudden you are going, oh, man, let's back out of this because there's all kinds of clamor that is going on. And the psalmist hears the, the drum beats of evil that is around him and it is getting louder and louder and therefore Asaph is alarmed. He's not coming to God as an informant and just saying, hey, just so you know, this is taking place. No, he, he is expressing the concern of the rise of evil. And he also, in verse 3, there's a shift. There's a focus from God's enemies to God's people. The problem is just not that Evil is growing because it is. The issue is that evil is threatening those who love God. That's the real issue. Those treasured ones. It's personal. Those enemy, these enemies of God are developing plans of evil. And Asaph calls upon God's compassion as motivation. He says, they consult together against your, what kind of ones? It's personal. And Asaph knows that God cares for his children. And that makes his heart ache. The growing threat and God's love seems to contradict each other. But they aren't. What happens? It generates prayer. The conflict generates prayer. God deeply cares for his people, but his ways don't always seem to make sense. God even uses conflict to stir something up in us. Yet in the midst of this pain, it is spiritually helpful for us, my friends, to cry out, to express to him our hurt, and at the same time, putting our hope in him. In verse 4, Asaph kind of says, man, look at it. He's heard about the plans of those who are evil, and it is not good. And it's not uncommon for these nations to do kind of some saber rattling, some making some extra noise out there before a battle to intimidate the opposing nation into submission. About 150 years after Jehoshaphat, which is a great name for your son, came another king, another great reformer. And this reformer was Hezekiah. And he faced a, a similar situation with Sennacherib. 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 That's a name not to name your child. Sennacherib. And Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And Sennacherib was known for being a brute. How did he win? By sheer brutality. He would cut off the limbs of his enemies and allow them and hope that they would live so that they would be a testimony to any opposing nation. He would, uh, around the, the cities that he would defeat, he would put poles out there with sharp ends. And on these poles, he would have the bodies of their conquered ones. Don't mess with me. Because this could be you. And so King Hezekiah was in a situation where this king was surrounding Jerusalem. They knew what was coming. And the king of Assyria sent a letter to Hezekiah and the people of Israel. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't be fooled by your God, in other words. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? In other words, are you really that stupid? You've seen what all the other nations have, 
have experienced? Are, do you really think that you are going to be spared? And Hezekiah's response was to go to the temple and to spread this letter out before the Lord in prayer. A powerful moment. And this is what he said. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent, uh, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of, of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but they were the work of ha man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from His hand that all the nations of the earth may know that You, O Lord, are God alone. Did you hear the please in there? Please. And that night, what did God do? God delivered Judah again. When an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 soldiers, causing the Assyrians to run for their lives. Once again, what did God do? He won. In verses 5 and five through 8, we find that we can easily get overwhelmed, right? They conspire with one accord. They make against you. They made a covenant of the tents of these people. And he kind of gets into this list of all the people that are against him. And, and the, there's just there's the sheer size of opposition. Asaph identifies that there are other nations teaming up, forming a covenant, and, and they're developing an alliance against Israel. Do you ever feel that when... When there's a problem in your life, all of a sudden you start seeing layers upon layers upon layers upon layers, and it becomes bigger and bigger. Sometimes it's a mental game, right? Sometimes it's reality. And verses 6 through 8 just lists all of the forces. There were the Edomites, the Ishmaelites, the Moabites, the Hagarites, the Gebelites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and these, they were just joining forces with with uh, the Philistines, the people of Tyre, the people of Ashur. And if, if you plot all of these nations on a map, it would be pretty obvious that the, the, the people of Judah were completely surrounded. There was no escape hatch for them. They were stuck. How many of you have ever seen uh, the miniseries Band of Brothers? Great, uh, great miniseries. And it basically, it is a, it's a story of a World War II uh, group of men. And it's in the midst of this war, uh, paratroopers were being dropped behind the enemy lines. And Lieutenant uh, Richard Winters was, look, uh, sorry, George Rice warns Lieutenant Richards, uh, Richard Winters saying, listen, Looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. Paratroopers being dropped in, and his, his supervisor says, it looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. And what did Winter say? We're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. We're supposed to be surrounded. And I love that quotation because it captures the, the difference between reality and perspective. Even though it, Judah was completely surrounded, God could still rescue them. It's only a matter of what they saw. So that should make you glad that Psalm 83 is in the Bible. I can only imagine how many of us have felt exactly the way Asaph is saying. Look at how bad things are. Look at how horrible things are. But God says, listen, there's hope. I am your God. I am the one who has rescued you. Do you know how you got out of Egypt? I took care of that. Do you, do you remember Hezekiah? 185,000. Done. 
I am a God who rescues you. And then there's ultimately his prayer, his request. So now that you kind of understand the crisis and there's an ache in his heart, we can understand what he is making in his request. And it's remarkable about how these next few verses show us how in prayer he, Asaph, is just God-centered. He's not just longing to be saved, to be rescued. He's longing that God's name would be elevated. That's the ultimate hope and goal in prayer. It's not, God, just rescue me. No, no, no. It's God, rescue me so that your name is lifted up. There's five requests. Verses 9 through 12. Rescue us again. He looks back to a time in the past where God clearly delivered His people. These are historical redemptive events. That's a great theological phrase right there. Historical redemptive events. It's the, like looking back in time and praising God for that so that here and later I could praise you in the midst of this storm. There's a story about Midian and this nation that was destroyed by a small band of 300 Israelite soldiers with the work of Gideon. There was the story of Sisera, who was the commander of the king of Canaan's armies, and how they were destroyed by a man named Barak. And these were famous and convincing victories for the nation of Israel. And it was clear that God did all the work. God was at work. So looking back, Asaph longs for God to move again in that kind of way. You've done it before. He wants God to rescue his people. Do it again, Lord. How many times have you had that kind of a prayer? For in your life, you look back and just say, wow, God was at work. But you know, this situation is different. Asaph says, no, pray that same prayer. Do it again. You've done it before. You can do it again right here. In verses 13 through 15, he's saying, show them your power. It's, it's not just personally rescuing me. He links his rescue with the display of God's power and God's might. In other words, if God moves to save us again, it is obvious who God really is. He is the Lord. He's the creator. He is the rescuer. He is the God over all other gods. And part of the pain of a moment was the fact that God's power was not fully on display. Asaph is going, come on God. I know how you work. Would you do it again? And turn up the heat. Turn up the heat. So he uses all kinds of metaphors. Did you pick them up? Of his power. Make them like whirling dust. Like chaff before the wind. You know how light dust is? And chaff? Show them how silly and powerless they really are. He's praying, God, blow them away. Then he gives another one. As fire consumes the forest. As flames set the mountains ablaze. What happens in a forest fire? Everything is scorched. You want to talk about scorched earth theory? This is it. Smoke them out, God. Get them out. So that you may pursue them with the tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. So now he's, he's imagining God chasing them, not just clearing out of the land, God is actually chasing them down with the full fury of his power. We, we, we don't see it up here in Illinois, but you look down in Florida and you look at how you get these hurricanes and it is just blowing these houses to smithereens. And he's saying, make it like that. Just clearing out the land, chase them down. And he's not saying this just because he's afraid or because he's mad. He's saying this because it really grieves him for how, that how the wicked thinks that they are greater than God. So God, turn up the heat. 
Show them who you are. And Because Asaph cannot stand to see God treated this way. In verse 16. Just look at what. Read it. Read it with me. Here we go. Fill their faces with shame. That they may seek your name, O Lord. What is that about? He sees these, these purveyors of evil and he wants them to see themselves in light of who God is. He wants the wicked people to see that they are not greater than God. He wants them to know that they are just men so that they will have to turn to God in repentance. Look at how great he is. So his aim is not vengeance. His aim is not really just deliverance. He is looking for true conversion. That they may seek your face. That they may seek your face, O oh God. That is the ultimate victory that will come for those who oppose God. And, and that his people will be, will be converted. So the, the psalmist's real target, real aim, Real, real goal is that the glory of God would be seen through people turning to him. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy, for, enjoy him forever. So that's the chief end of man. That's the chief end of our ministry. And that's even the chief end of this psalm. To glorify God and enjoy him. To make much of the name of God. So in our day, think about what would happen if there was, let, let's, let's stay local. Think about this. If every one of you, say your name right now. No, say your name right now. You, you, if every one of you would experience in your household and in your neighborhood and in your workplace, you, you would experience widespread movement of conversions. Could you imagine that? You open your mouth, you share the gospel, and there is a, a movement of actual conver conversions taking place. The fastest kind of cultural change happens historically, historically when there's amazing, glorious conversions taking place. In 1905, there was a great revival that swept Wales. And it was estimated that 100,000 people received Christ in a short period of time. 100,000. Could you imagine? That's the Lincoln Way area, right? The conversion had a direct effect on its culture. Colin Hansen, in his book, A God-Sized Vision, writes this. The effect of the Welsh conversion society was undeniable. Output from the coal mines famously slowed because the horses couldn't move. Miners converted in the revival no longer kicked or swore at the horses. So horses didn't know what to do. The judge, judges closed their courtrooms with nothing to judge. Can you imagine such conversion that Cook County, Will County Courthouse, they all shut down because, man, we have nothing to do. Crime is at an all-time low. This, this is amazing. What is going on? Evil is thwarted, is stopped when conversions take place. You want to see change in our, our world? and I'm assuming your silence is yes, <coughs> be a part of this gospel movement of bringing the light of Christ to all men and women. In verse 17, verse 18, I gotta, I gotta get moving. Verse 17, Asaph says, God, would you just judge them? He's longing for that final judgment. He longs for God's name to be vindicated, 
for their punishment to be clear, to be swift, and to be eternal. That's, that's a hard thing. And why, why is he doing that? Not because he's vindictive or he's mean. He's doing it because of the fame of God's name. See, God is not just God of love. He's also a God of justice. And that, it's not either or. It's a both and. God is holy. He is also merciful. He's also forgiving. But there is also justice. So he looks for the for judgment on the heels of talking about this conversion of the, the wicked because he longs for God's name to be hallowed. And then verse 18. Psalm, the psalm ends with Asaph's ultimate desire to see God's name lifted up. That is why, that is why his heart was aching in the first place. God lovers and divine glory beholders long to see the expansion of God's rule and God's reign. That's why he says, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all. So as we look at this, what do you see in here? Psalm 83 has some important questions about what we see and what we say when life gets rough. Every one of us is going to find us in this season of life where it feels like the evil is just insurmountable. It's heavy. It's palpable. It's right here. And it is just heavy and dark and it smells like sin. Smells like death. So here's a couple questions. One, when you look at the world, do you see the brokenness of sin? Do you? Do you see, do you love the glory of God such that it makes your heart ache? When you see this brokenness and you see the glory of God in that tension, does your heart just ache? Does it make you want to cry? Does it cause you to cry out to God? Is there aching that is going on? I cannot live in this tension. Lord, would you act? Do you know that the ultimate historical redemptive moment, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that has the power to actually change everything? That is where real power and change takes place. It's not through schools. It's not through social work. It's not through these things. Although Christians might be agents in, in and working through that. Ultimately, it is the gospel that changes everything. Everything. And do you pray just for holy discontentment, for God's name to be exalted around the world, in our nation, in your family, in your friends, and in your own heart? God, may I just be discontent with where I am, where we are. Lord, come fix this world. And do you long for God to act, not just to rescue you? That's often our prayers, right? Rescue me fix this situation? Do you long for God to act not only to rescue you and to change your circumstances, but for the fame and the glory of His name? God, I'm praying that you fix this situation because I want your name to be elevated. That is our prayer. So Psalm 83 is a song for the season of silence in your life, the moment when you painfully ponder how long will God allow the brokenness of this world to continue so some of you here are just feeling the, the pain of sin's effects on your life and it is so real that you wonder how can you possibly live another day Anthony Bourdain right Kate Spade suicide is a real challenge it's a real pain and we wonder, can I make it another day? Can I make it another week? Can I go through another season of life? But know this, that on one day, and hopefully I pray soon, God will make good on His promise. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And he, God Himself will be with 
them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, until that time, until that Revelation 21 moment, we wait. And it sucks. But we wait. We wait with aching hearts and upward-focused prayers. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Let's pray. That's our prayer, Lord. Would you come? Would your name be elevated? Would the nations know that you are God? May we remember how you have acted in the past and call you to act again for your name's sake, for your glory's sake. God, I pray that we as a church long more for that, for your fame, for your renown, that people will see you as the most high God. But until that time, Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Pray this in Jesus.